0: This
1: is Democracy,
0: a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's
1: most influential
2: democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, the ways in which the history of racism in our democracy, and particularly the history of the Confederacy and the Lost Cause, which is very much in the news today, how that history deeply affects uh, issues of diversity and leadership in our institutions. Uh, We're going to look at how this uh, set of historical debates has meaning, not just as history, but in the contemporary ways in which we build our institutions and we define leadership in our society, and particularly the barriers to diversity and leadership that uh, so many of us recognize our democracy needs. We're going to talk to a good friend, a prior guest on our podcast, and really, I think, one of the most exciting and interesting people writing, talking, and teaching, and leading himself on these issues, uh, my colleague, Professor Richard Reddick. Uh, As I hope everyone already knows, uh, Rich is the inaugural associate dean for equity, community engagement, and outreach for the College of Education here at UT. He's a distinguished associate professor in the program in higher education leadership and the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy. Actually, Richard, you're a full professor now, right? Is that correct?
0: Um, We'll look at the clock, and I think as of September, uh, barring any unforeseen um, calamities, that will be the case
2: well i should then say he is he, he is soon to be as he pending. i should have been a long time ago full professor uh, <laughs> covering all those issues as if that's not enough as if all these things i've already mentioned are not enough he's also the assistant director of the plan to honors program and a faculty member in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies and various other parts of campus. Uh, Rich has written numerous uh, numerous studies articles uh, and recently uh, published three that I want to draw people's attention to, one in Fortune, one in uh, CNN. And one uh, that was just published uh, in Nature, actually, in our, an article where he was interviewed, where he's talked about these very issues about the challenges of diversity and leadership, and issues of cultural taxation—the the ways in which our past history uh, creates barriers to diversity and leadership. Uh, and so, I hope this conversation will, will will send many people to go read more of Rich's work. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Rich.
0: You know, Jeremy, I just need you to do my walk-up uh, talk every time I do a lecture or something. I, I just feel so empowered and <laughs> wonderful after hearing that introduction. Thank you so much. Uh, it's good to be here with Zach as well. This is always uh, fun to hang out with you guys and and have a conversation.
2: Well, you're, you're always uh, so supportive of, of what we do as well. So it's really it's fun to work with you, Rich. Um, we're going to turn to Zachary's scene-setting poem here. Zachary, what is
1: the title of your poem? Today the pedestals are empty. Let's hear it. Today, the statues float in rivers, and finally the citadels of false reverence are beginning to fall. What does it say about us that we are obsessed with protecting the statues of the long dead, that we refuse to forget the false righteousness of lost violence, the so-called honor in dying for evil? That we are obsessed with forgetting the blood that came sweating from the whip and spilled from the hanging corpses of martyrs and the blood that dried in Tennessee grass from dead immigrant soldiers. What does it say about us that our nation's capital is surrounded by roads named after traitors, named after traitors to American morality who sold flesh as if it were currency and lives as if they were commodities? named after feudalists who claimed false moral supremacy and enslavement, who wrote hateful diatribes to the supremacy of the white man as slaves built the White House from solid white marble. What does it say about us, America, that there are still schools named after enslavers, still schools named after killers, still plinths that memorialize the dead dynasties of glorified brutality? That there are still plantation graveyards and prison labor camps that we turn into antebellum yurts of civilization in our distorted histories. That there are flags that still wave the old symbols of hatred in breezes 150 years new. Today, the pedestals are empty, and finally the plaques have been rewritten in paint. Zachary, what what is this um, beautiful elegic poem uh, about? Well, this poem is really about uh, the lost cause of the Confederacy and how it has infected uh, the memorials, the statues, and the institutions of our society, and how today we are finally beginning to see them rooted out of our institutions and our memorials.
2: That's great. I, I love the historical element of that and also the hopeful contemporary element. Uh, Rich, as, as as someone who who spends so much time thinking about these issues, why do these Confederate statues matter? Some people will say, well, they've been there for so long. What's what's the problem? Why, why do they matter?
0: Well, first of all, I don't know. You could hear my finger snaps as Zachary is reading the poem, but it, it's uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. Thank you so much for that, Zachary. And, you know, it's funny you say, uh, you know, so long, because in fact, they haven't been there so long in most cases. So um, uh, a few years ago, and as you know, um, the normalcy of the normalization of Confederacy and the lost cause is just something that as somebody who grew up in Texas, you just come up with it. So as I always tell people, you know, I went to Albert Sidney Johnston High School. I was an associate editor of the Confederate yearbook. And this was just normal and it was a school populated almost entirely by black and brown kids uh you know nobody ever challenged or thought about it in any way until you get a little bit older and you start sort of in fact i'll point to my history professor uh george wright and you know reading hanlon's the uh peculiar institution and those books i'm like wait a minute <laughs> right. i was misinformed um <laughs> or there were some things that were not brought to light in my schooling experience and so part of it is, is just sort of the legacy of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, this auxiliary who very efficiently um, worked to make sure that the lost cause was enshrined in textbooks and in our statuary. So um, what's really fascinating, and this is something that blew my mind, I did some work on this a while ago. There was a company called, I think the Bridgepoint, the Bridgeport uh, Monument Company in Bridgeport, Connecticut, who started making these uh, statues. And if you look at these statues, uh, like Silent Sam and those like that, they're not of a particular person, they're not of Lee, they're not of you know Stonewall Jackson, they're of just a generic Confederate soldier. They were mass produced at this place. And in fact, the first couple of years they did this, the statues were exactly the same. They had a Confederate and a Union soldier, exactly the same. Different belt buckles. Uh and as time went on, they refined it and they gave him the uh rebel cap and so on and so forth. And they're actually made out of this really cheap uh alloy. So when you see Silent (laughs) Sam topple, seriously, when you look at those things of Silent Sam toppling, he crumbles like a tin can because it's out of this very cheap alloy. And the Bridgeport, the Bridgeport Monument Company would send out a uh installer to your location for a certain price and put it up and that's why we had something like 4000 Confederate monuments across this country not just the confederacy but also in places like Massachusetts and Arizona um so it's the propagandizing of the confederacy as some lost cause and linking it to this idea of noble aspirations when in fact uh Zachary's words about uh rebellion and traitorism is exactly what it was um, so I, I think there are people who might listen to this and say, those are anathemic words. How can you say those things? But it's the truth. And we just don't get exposed to the truth. And we had the fortune, you and I and Jeremy I mean, and Zachary Sue in the future, to, to go to college and meet with historians and learn this deeply, and then just have the sense that why were we so ill-informed, or why were these things omitted, or why did we sort of... You know, gravitate towards a description of the Confederacy and of slavery and of 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 that antebellum time that is wholly, wholly false. So yeah, and I think we're all sort of in this sort of uh, post-traumatic stress experience of realizing that we were misinformed and, and we weren't told the entire story and how do we reconcile the very normalization of this? Because it's in our streets, it's in our schools, it's in almost everything we think of. So yeah, it, it's a moment of rec- reckoning and, and Zachary's poem really speaks to that. So yeah, it, it's such a great piece and I think it it, it needs to be written, framed somewhere because I think that's what we're talking <laughs> about.
1: What, what makes the lost cause so potent? It, it's hard to find another historical uh cause in another country that is still so relevant today you know
0: um we're getting into your dad's area but i i think um part of it is just the 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 incomplete sort of um reconstruction right um i think i've talked about this before my one of my favorite bands of all time is rem second the third album is called fables of the reconstruction right and reconstruction is a fable right i mean we had that period of time after the war uh, during Grant's administration where you actually saw the potential and the possibility. And you know, we all were there uh, when our good friend, Peniel Joseph, brought Skip Gates here and talked about his work uh, right. on, on uh, Reconstruction. And this glorious you know, 10 year window where things were moving in that direction and of course it was shut off. And so ever since then, we've never really had that complete experience of coming to terms and reconciling what happened so when i think about i had the benefit of being on a panel years ago with some scholars who were actually uh artists sculptors uh talking about memorials and they were talking about it from a global perspective so what happened uh post-world war ii in germany what happened at the fall of the berlin wall in the eastern bloc and other countries have had these moments of uh really uh contemplation and reflection on what happened right um we kind of just normalized it you know the fact that the people who fought in the confederacy you know were never tried for treason um and and never had that sort of um that reckoning that happened and in fact you know sort of live on as sort of uh alt heroes um is is deeply problematic and, and there's something to be said about the fact that most Americans have such an incomplete uh, understanding of what truly happened. So you have to commend things like the uh, Grant uh, miniseries that came out a little while ago. And of course, Skip's uh, work that we saw on PBS about reconstruction because um, it's maddening because we might know so much about some other parts of our history, but really so little about this. And, you know, the fact that many of us came up with this understanding or this, this lie that the Confederacy was about states' rights, and you've got documentation from the vice president of the Confederacy say, saying this is about slavery, right? right. Um, so those pieces are omitted, and it's not omitted by accident, right? There, there's a, you know, we're here at the University of Texas, and George Littlefield and, you know, our good friend Leonard Moore is the uh, George Littlefield chair. George Littlefield's Whole uh, sort of mission was to preserve the lost cause, right? Like, let's make sure that it's always regarded that these were noble people. And I want to get very clear that you can always have regard for you know individuals or family members who took up arms because their family was part of this. But in its aggregate, it was a war, and it was a a, a, a mission grounded in white supremacy and the subjugation of black people and native people. That's what it was. There's no way of getting around that. Uh, that is part of our, our birth record in the United States. And um, it's time we became resilient enough to actually confront that and deal with that.
2: Uh, how, how rich has this um, mythical and and distorted history that, that you've just recounted so so well, uh, How how has it been a barrier to diversity, particularly in leadership positions across our society, political leadership positions, athletic, university, business. Uh, you've been writing and thinking about this a lot. Uh, what's the connection between the history and the the lack of diversity in our leadership?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point because people become ahistorical, right? And they're like, "What well, why does history matter? Like, Just leave them alone. They're there. They're not bothering anybody. But- um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, the statuary um, and the memorials for the Confederacy had two sort of peaks. Uh, One was around 1890 to about 1910 or so. And that's the time when most of the uh, soldiers of the Confederacy were beginning to die. So, you know, there's this interest in sort of seeing them memorialized in that way. The next period of time when it starts ramping up is about 1950. Um, And 1950, of course, is the birth of the civil rights movement in this country. Uh, And so, these uh statuary and these symbols are not necessarily meant to only commemorate they're also there to intimidate uh they're there to remind people of their place in society so certainly when you walk into a space and i went to years ago i had a talk at university of north carolina Asheville, and uh i met with a couple of black uh colleagues there and they said you know we should go downtown and get lunch and you know hang out we did and so we go downtown and um my God, you know uh, the downtown uh Asheville's sort of uh commemoration of the Confederacy is something to behold yes.
2: uh, Zachary's just reminding me we were we were in Asheville a few years ago and and we had just that same reaction, just even as tourists walking through there, yeah,
0: exactly and, and so when you look there and you see these spires and these statues, and you see look this regiment came through here. When you put yourself in that situation, especially myself as a black person, I'm like, okay, these people clearly were, did not have my best interests in mind, um, and you are embracing that idea. You're not simply saying, like, for instance, and I'll give a shout out to our colleagues over at the Briscoe Center for American History at UT, You know, contextualizing what this meant. You know, There's a fantastic display they have there uh, of some of the statuary, in fact, the Jeff Davis statue in the um, museum there. And it's contextualized, it explains, you know, why did Littlefield want the statue present? What was the con- controversy? And it was controversial from the first time it got through the 1920s until uh, it was taken down in 2015. So, you know, that's how we think about these things. And certainly um, the position that it doesn't bother me or it's honorary, it's something that people who hold privilege or don't hold the identities of the the group subjugated, uh, will often feel. There's a discomfort I have anytime I go into a place, even the Capitol, where I see these sort of statues like looming over. It says something about the values of an institution. um, And that's codified in the normalization, like you said, of white supremacy. So it's not a long line between statuary and imagery to attitudes, to values, uh, to what you feel is acceptable, who you can envision in leadership but who you can't, right? And and every person who is not part of sort of the dominant uh, cultural identity that's seen in business or in academia has dealt with this. If you're a queer person, if you're a woman, uh, if you are of any identity, person of color, you've you've been told or confronted at some point in time, I am clearly in the minority in this space. And people are either telling me overtly or covertly that – you know, what an exception you are. Or do you really belong here? And, and it's funny because people often think that doesn't happen. It does. People do will say things like, well, you know, you went to what institution? Oh, wow. When were you there? Like, I, how is it possible you had that experience? Like, you don't belong there. These micro-invalidations, and sometimes they're macro-invalidations, uh, occur constantly. So this is really um, something... That is enduring and the statuary is a very clear sort of launching point for it. Like statuaries, budgets, uh, positionality all express institutional values. And when you look at those things, you know clearly where an institution stands. And, and that's why I'm so I'm so glad that uh, we made the decision in twenty fifteen to take down uh, the Confederate statues on this campus, because it conveys something about the values of your institution. Yeah
1: how do we begin to rewrite this narrative of the lost cause within our institutions and how do we use that to promote diversity
0: yeah it's a good question well you know um our good friends who are historians are really at the vanguard of that work um and of course as an educator and somebody who works in the school of education you know i I think it's critically important that we start this process early like um you shouldn't have to have the benefit of having George Wright as your professor to undo and unpack what you learned or didn't learn. Um, and so my colleagues like Angela Valenzuela and Keflin Brown, Anthony Brown, and Dinah Berry, who are doing this great work to sort of catapult ethnic studies at the same time, also integrating uh, the critical perspectives that are needed to sort of talk about this sort of American uh sort of manifest destiny story that is disneyfied right basically it's great and we won and it's been fantastic and instead uh bring in those and, and the thing is it's a more honest conversation and you know by no means am i saying uh the british have this down but when i was in the uk last year with my students and i took a group of uh 20 sorry 17 students in my family to cambridge for a month and uh my my student group was half students of color. Um, we sat in a session, British history from 1066 to 2019. Uh, wow. <laughs> so exactly, <laughs> but a country that's that that's that old, I think has a way of reconciling and sort of discussing its past that we haven't gotten to. Right, I, I think there is a fragility about how we view ourselves as a nation. And we can't say you know our involvement in colonial uh, expansion was a terrible thing it was terrible for the filipinos it was terrible for the cubans it was terrible for the panamanians right uh, we, we we can't have that conversation and reconcile the fact that people we hold up who are parts of those things are indeed flawed people they can have accomplished amazing things but also had very, very troubled pasts, and so the greatest example of that is probably Thomas Jefferson, right? We all grew up respecting Thomas Jefferson and his genius, but we didn't know he was a rapist, and we didn't know that you know he you know had a family uh, that was biracial that he never really acknowledged right uh, and you know he grappled with this in his own life um, but that's the kind of discussion we have to have and it's instructive to us, I think, in the present day about what our legacy will be. You know, if we're not confronting the own inconsistencies and problematic issues in our own lives, we're subject to the same kinds of things. So, I think it's it's very much, I think, uh, part of this nation's development. Like, we really have to grapple with what that looks like, and it's not going to be comfortable, and it's going to be painful because oftentimes the people we're talking about. Um, you can find their descendants walking around today. And, you know, kudos to, for instance, Robert E. Lee's family who have come up publicly and said, you know, we don't need to see the statues of our ancestor. That's not necessary. Um, it's really refreshing when people have kind of personified what it means to be honest and reflect on what we've uh, what sins we've committed as, as a nation. And also, that gives us opportunities to think about imagining a contemporary and a future that is inclusive, that does acknowledge the things that people can, in fact, have accomplished amazing things in their lives, but also be deeply problematic. They're not dichotomous experiences. And that's really the story of humanity, right? I think from the major to the minor, we've all uh, done things that are commendable. We've all done things that we're not happy about. But the way to resolve that is not by saying, Everything's great, la la la, fingers in the ears. It's not the way to do it. The way to do it is say this is a complex person with accomplishments that are noteworthy and should be acknowledged. But also, the reality is this person also was a part of a system that perpetuated the subjugations of peoples, uh, and that needs to be embraced. And, and like I said, it's not comfortable. I mean, every single time when I think about my my step up books, my little series of books I had as a kid, meet Robert E. Lee. You right. know, and then, you know, hey, cool guy. Actually, let's talk about that in, more comp- in a more complex manner. And you can still walk away and say these people did commendable and amazing things, but I'm going to weigh that with the other things they did. And that might actually have me thinking this person is noteworthy as a historical um, contributor but not noteworthy in the sense to have statuary or memorials and so on and so forth.
2: It's such a good point, and it really reflects how the scholarship has advanced in the last 10 to 20 years. I mean, you have scholars like Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf who have uh, elucidated just what you talked about with Thomas Jefferson, uh, his mistreatment uh, and his his raping activities and things of that sort. Uh, But at the same time, they've also argued that there's some of Jefferson we need to keep, that exactly. it doesn't diminish. In fact, it gives us a fuller sense of his struggles with freedom and power and liberty and slavery. And it doesn't mean we apologize, but it doesn't mean we throw him out either. It makes him actually a more interesting and important figure for our struggles today. Uh, that 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 fullness, that fuller portrait, I think can be so much more helpful for us. How do we create those fuller portraits that are more inclusive, for our students and for people in the workforce today, uh, who are serious uh, about bringing diversity, I think there's there, there's enormous goodwill and an enormous desire among so many people to do this. Mm-hmm. How can we do this? What should the new statuary look like, Rich?
0: Well, as as you were speaking, I'm looking at the Hemingses the Hemingses of Monticello on my shelf here. So yes, uh, and that Gordon Gordon Reed's work and others. So I think it's, it is embracing first of all the fact that. Uh, generations of scholars and they tend to be women they tend to be women of color have really interrogated these histories in a way that we haven't seen before from the hagiographies to these more complex uh, stories of people who struggled with you know things they knew were inadequate in their own uh, selves. And you know frankly I think about this issue of statuary, and I've said often to people maybe we need to move away from that kind of memorialization like maybe the vestige of, uh, you know, the Romans and the and the Greeks, maybe it's time to move past that kind of uh, sort of imagery and and, and move on to uh, more uh, naturalistic ways of, of memorializing. So, you know, I've had conversations with our good friend Ted Gordon and uh, other folks about, like, how do we remember and honor uh, the contributions of people every single day? And the University of Texas, of course, I think every day about the, uh, the the students that came, African-American students that came to campus undergraduates in 1954. And of course our graduate students who came in 1950, many of whom are still around. Uh, and that is my uh, motivation and their contribution. There's no statues of them. Uh, and frankly, a lot of them would say, we don't really think we need statues. You know, We want to be remembered, uh, but remembered in a way that we are living history and the things you do on a daily basis. That you're able to access are things that our our experiences contributed to in some way. So, you know, for me, I, I think it is really about reimagining our memory. Like, you know, instead of the default being a statue, uh, maybe the default is you know multimedia presentations about who people are and what people did, and being attentive to not just leaders in causes but people who worked every day. So, uh, some of my friends are really, um, I, I have had this wonderful experience of having, um, a lot of friends from the group that is, uh, part of the RAG radio, which are a group of former students that are at UT and they came here in the sixties and they worked on civil rights issues and, you know, anti-war issues. And it really is a story of everyday ordinary people, students who came to the university of Texas or came to Austin and got involved and you know got deeply attached so uh, i think about thorn dryer and alice Embry and, and my good friend hortensia palomares i get to hear those stories and they talk to my students about what they did 50 years ago and you know it's it's, it's uh, like you said a much more humanizing portrait of their experiences and um i always gravitate to those kinds of stories like it's much more interesting to hear somebody say You know, I had no idea what this cause was, but when I got here, I saw these things happening and I picked up a picket sign or I got involved in a political movement. And one day I was in charge or one day, you know, we had battles about the intersectionality of our movements. Should we talk about anti-war and racism as well? Like all those things became part of the discussions. So um, those kinds of reimaginings, I think are important that we don't just simply fall into Um, a kind of tired way of remembering our history and saying, it's going to be a statue of this person. We're going to name a high school after this person. Instead of saying, let's really uh, think about ways to express their contributions and also be attentive to the fact that a lot of times historical um, memory is in the sort of eyes and images of the powerful, the people who led the movement and not realizing that most movements if not all movements included people, women, uh, folks of color, um, folks with disabilities, folks from all identity groups that aren't often thought about. Um and so the part of it's that is just understanding that um our, our desire to, you know, simplify and place um historical impact in one one being is usually not the right way to do it. Right.
2: I, I, I love that description, Rich. I mean, what, what it seems to me you're saying is we have to move away from what is a kind of tokenism, right? Yeah. Which is An obsession with a, a personality or a name or a statue and actually go into the narrative space, which is really where democracy occurs, where, where yeah. we're having conversations and we're bringing out the multiple points of view and multiple experiences that, that in the end make our institutions the exciting places they are.
0: Yes, absolutely, and I, I think that is exactly what it is. It's um, we don't have to simply gravitate and be part of um, a very troped way of memorializing the past. And you know, um, it, it's 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 time to think about what that looks like and what that means. And um, you know, I'm so thankful. I I was I was taught by um, you know, Julie Rubin, my professor at Harvard, when I was a graduate student, I worked with her and and Julie's work on, you know, anti-war in the sixties was so instructive because it didn't just sort of gravitate around big name people. There were a lot of people involved in this conversation. That's what history actually is. And, you know, one of the challenges I'm sure you have as a history professor is people thinking it's all dead white guys, because at one point in time, that's what we were moralized. And it's not about these uh, lives. And of course, my experience as a As a scholar who studies inequity, I'm fascinated by uh, the primary source documents of people in my community who I know who were at school board meetings, who were doing other types of things um, that need to be regarded. So yes, I absolutely think that um, we need to start acknowledging, and first of all, not just saying that this is only a historical project, it's also a project that involves educators sociologists anthropologists uh public health people like it's truly interdisciplinary work to sort of bring our work into this uh space and memorialize and remember and also connect to the present like it's not simply an issue about what's happening or what happened 10 years ago there are tendrils and connections to what's happening today um and that's the most fascinating thing about this work i always tell my students in my history of higher education class you know Everything we're talking about has a connection to something that you deal with right now,
2: uh, Rich. I think that's that's really such a, a crucial point. And and how and this is where, we, as you know, we always like to close. How do we go from here to understand and and to to do this in our lives today? What 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 are some of the ways in which those who don't have the the privilege of of being educators and writing books but have to mm-hmm. Work through these institutions on a day-to-day basis. How can they take this perspective and bring it to their institutions? It seems to me that's what you're writing about when you're talking about how we have to open our institutions for more diversity. How do we do that? How do we bring these stories in?
0: Yeah, um, and that's the struggle, right? That's that's the the beautiful struggle, like we're all involved in. And I think it's a matter of localizing the the, the issue. So context matters. So in all the pieces I've written. There's a historical context I have to talk about. Like, you know, we're not talking about a problem in the abstract. We're talking about a problem that has its roots in social norms and political norms that sort of are a reflection of what happened in this organizational space. Um, So that's the first thing. So uh, we can't be detached from that historical aspect of it. Um, The other thing, of course, is that we have to have courage. Um, Leaders have to have courage uh, to really look for those issues and, and not say, well, I guess we weren't involved in that, so phew. No, no, you know, let's really look and examine where are the places in our organizational history where we could have done better, that we've learned um, later on that were problematic, and and come with those first. I'll never forget when Ruth Simmons was president at Brown, and she said, you know, Brown had ties to the slave trade, and, uh, you know, this was the 90s. People were like, what are you talking about? And of course, anything that was uh, part of the American economy, and universities are part of that, were deeply involved in the slave trade. Um, and so, of course, then you have the excellent work of Craig Stephen Wilder, uh, Ebony and the Ivy, uh, and so this examination of higher education's complicit behavior, especially the institutions that we always talk about how you know we engender, we love the fact that we're 400, 300 years old, which also means we are also greatly involved in the... Uh, Shadow slavery, um, and even we are not. So, of course, our good friend Ted Gore makes this point. You know, we could be neo-Confederate institutions like the University of Texas, uh, built after and established after uh, the war, but very much embedded in a context of the Confederacy. Um, so, it's courage. It, it's courage to confront that. It's courage to um, have conversations about what that means. What does it mean to be uh, lived to live in the space like that? And I think sometimes people assume, well, you know, a statue's there, a portrait's there, it doesn't mean anything. But when you think about the all-encompassing aspects of it, it's overwhelming, right? And you can understand why people don't feel they can hit, reach their full potential because of that. And also, as I said earlier, let's not act as if statuary and portraits and building names don't actually influence how we think about right. the current context and the people who occupy those spaces. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and that's a huge part of what we're uh, confronting so I, I say it's courage it, it's 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 also like what you and i do is you know being engaged in public scholarship you know um, the books are great the articles are great but are you doing things in spaces that people can pick up in their paper and say okay that's new uh, i didn't know that because i i'm sure you get the same thing people often say to me you know rich i read your piece i didn't know this right yeah and i got problems with you but, you know, but, but usually, if they start with that, I'm, I'm somewhere in the universe of like, cool, because that is my goal. I want to make sure that the things that I had the privilege of understanding and reading and studying, that um, it goes to a, a broader audience. And as a public at university, that's part of our job. Um, we Absolutely. don't have the luxury of, of publishing you know, high-impact press books and having them on, on shelves in libraries. We need to talk to people in our community and make sure that we're having a dialogue, quite frankly. It's not just a one-way thing. I often will go to spaces and present some ideas, and they're like, "Well, did you know about this that happened here?" I'm like, "No, please let me know and educate me." Right. So I right. I see us as being perpetually in this uh, generation of knowledge and learning space, and it's a humble space to be in too, which I always uh, appreciate. I couldn't do this if it was just about getting praise and you know saying great things. It's like, no, I learn a lot too. Right.
2: Right. And, and you model so well in, in the substance of what you say and how you say it, Rich, that, that this is all a dialogue, that it's not it's not about staking a position. It's yes. about actually trying to understand and building that dialogue, which is what then opens space for more voices and gives people access who haven't traditionally had access, which in turn makes our institutions better. Zachary, does, does this discussion... Um, uh, from Rich, does this, does this give you more courage? Because it seems at, at the root of what Rich is talking about is a willingness to open conversations that people sometimes don't want to talk about. They don't want to open these conversations for all kinds of reasons. Do you and do you think that other young people are taking from this moment today more courage and, and how?
1: I think this is a very powerful moment and I think really the longest lasting impact that this moment will have is that young people, people I've known for a very long time who were never really willing to talk about these issues are finally opening their eyes to it and willing to have these discussions. We're finally beginning to see that history isn't just the mixture of great people who were either heroes or villains. We're finally trying to see history as a narrative of both good and bad that's very complex that still influences us today.
2: Well, that's the most optimistic thing I think one could say. If, if we open our eyes and start to have these conversations, they, they create opportunities that, that haven't existed for so long. Rich, thank you for your inspiring words, for your deep analysis, and, and for modeling the kind of uh, narrative and open discussion that we need so much in our society today. It's really a pleasure to be your friend and colleague, and, and I, I treasure uh, working with you and talking with you on our podcast in particular.
0: Well, likewise, Jeremy, and and you and Zachary make a a great team, and I'm Mm -hmm. always inspired about the importance of connecting what we're talking about to what Zachary's experiencing. And, and, you know, that is, I have to always remind people um, that the generative part of what we do is is not just, you know, getting back slaps from our peers, but just the idea that there's uh, a young person that's like, okay, well, now you're exemplifying for me what I could do. Or you said something I really don't like, and I want to say something to respond to you. And I'm going to read some books and write some stuff to get that going. So this is all part of a, of a dialogue that I'm really proud to be part of. And I'm proud to be part of your cabal uh, of trouble, <laughs> as John Lewis calls it, good trouble. Good um, trouble. Yep. And, 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 and I, I think, think something sorry go ahead rich no i I just think that this is such a vital thing and um, i'm always telling people to check out the podcast because i do think um you're reaching folks who are probably not likely to pick up a a very esteemed uh volume from dr surrey which you should uh but (laughs) in lieu of that as i'm driving to the supermarket i'll listen to this podcast and maybe pick up on a couple of things uh and, and learn that that's a a challenge uh or just get me open to other things, and that's a lot of time. I'm just like, if I'm just setting you in motion to something, and you're setting me in motion to look at something, that's all we ask for as scholars, right? Right,
2: that's that's right. And I think the engine of scholarship, like the engine of democracy, and, and you model this so well, Rich, is getting new generations to 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 think about things. Generational change is actually what brings social and political change, and and that's, that's what we, we're, we're seeding. You, you do that better than anyone else, Rich. Zachary, thank you for your, your poem, of course. Thank you for your yes. insight. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.
1: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.